I'm Tim Gombus, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I catch all 17 of you up on what I've been doing the last month or so, and I talk a little bit about reading biblical narratives. So I'm standing here in my study on a very lovely Monday afternoon here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. A little bit chilly on a mid-spring day. We've had some surprisingly lovely weather uh, here in Michigan, in West Michigan. And um, I've taken the opportunity to get out to the woods, uh, taking walks in the late afternoon and evening, which has been just fantastic. Those are gifts for uh, living here in Grand Rapids. This last year, this last winter has been the third most snow that has ever fallen on Grand Rapids, That at least that is recorded. And um, from having gone through that, that's uh, I can verify. We've had a lot of snow, which is insane. Uh, I was talking to my folks recently in Chicago, and they said they got one snow that basically amounted to like an inch, which is bananas. That's just insane. Anyway, uh Days like today are also a real gift. I'm going to get out later for a second walk. Um, just been too long that we've been sort of shut in. And I love taking opportunities to get out and stretch and breathe deep and uh, talk to the trees. I do realize that it's been uh, a month since I've published an episode of this high-quality podcast. I've just kind of been all over the place. I've been traveling a bunch, but then also there are uh, Mondays where I kind of plan to record and then for one reason or another, it doesn't work out or I just don't feel like it. And that is one of the great benefits to me of doing this podcast for me and not really for anyone else that, uh, if I'm just not feeling it, if thoughts are not coming together. Um, I'll just check out and do something else. Um, got an email from Mark a couple of days ago, pleading with me to not, uh, take too extended of a hiatus. I'm always grateful that anything that I have to say is helpful to other people, but ultimately uh, I do this to sort of keep my, keep myself intellectually engaged and and active and producing something, um, bringing thoughts together and making sure that I'm actually, um, yeah, intellectually active. So turns out I've not been as intellectually active as I might've been uh, or else the outlets are just a little bit different than this here podcast. I, uh, yesterday was down in Gary, Indiana and hanging out with the folks at flourishing church, uh, for a couple hours and had the absolute best time. Uh, the pastor of that church, Dexter, um, invited me to come down and hang out and enjoy their company and their fellowship. Um, they do, they're, they're doing some really interesting creative work and there's, um, it's a wonderful multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, fellowship there. And um, that, that kind of model often doesn't work as well as it might, um, typically because that sort of model is enacted where uh, there's largely white leadership. And um, that's not the case at Flourishing Church. And it's also, there, there are just so many things about its structure that I think set it up very, very well. Um, 
for just such goodness. And there's, there's such a spirit of uh, community and hospitality there. And I honestly, um, just had the, the best time got to meet some really wonderful folks, uh, including Chris and we had a couple of good conversations with him and Hannah had a blast talking with crystal and also met up with a, a friend, Jason, with whom I've had some uh, email interchanges and we had, um, lunch a couple of weeks back, but thank you, Dexter. That was, um, that was just a real gift to me. Um, I think it's every fourth Sunday that they do something. Uh, I'm probably getting this wrong, uh, but they rearrange their sort of their meeting space and they have a meal and uh, someone shares their life narrative or their testimony. And um, it's, it's just, I mean, it's a little bit of a challenge for someone like me who loves to eat uh, to make it through an extended period of time where you're smelling such incredible food while you're trying to pay attention. Uh, but it wasn't, wasn't all that difficult, but we, we had a meal and there was stuff going on in the service and then stuff going on still dur during the meal. It was just the coolest time. Loved it. Anyway, thank you, Dexter. Um, I'm doing, uh, I've been doing still just like a lot of travel. This is kind of what I've been up to over the last um, year and a half or so in this very, very uh, odd and sort of liminal period of my life. I don't know what this period of my life is going to look like um, if I live another uh, 20 or 40 or 50 years, um, which is possible. There's a lot of longevity in my family. My One of my great aunts just died a week or two shy of being 104. Her younger sister is now 99. Um, so who knows how long this, this is going to go. But I don't know what this, um, this period of my life is going to look like when I look back on it, but in the middle of it, I'm just having the absolute best time. A couple weeks ago, I was in Seattle visiting my son, Jake, and his partner, Inez, and their crazy um, nonstop super speedy dog, Luna, and uh, grumpy old man dog, Seymour, and um, Jake and I just spent a ton of time together, uh, long drives, walks, hikes, uh, conversations over meals, and um, I just, I flew home so utterly full and my heart was just full and um i'm just the luckiest guy in the world to be related to someone like jake it's just one of the great delights of my life and um just to be to sort of share our life journeys together is is an immense gift had a blast there um so this has been kind of coast to coast just before that i took a, a road trip out to virginia uh, stopped and saw my friend John on the way out there in Ohio. Hung out with my college roommate Lance for a couple days and saw my sister Allison. And um, driving back through Columbus, stopped and saw two others of my sisters, Meredith and Gillian. Had a great time with them. Um, on all these drives, I've been taking, I, I road tripped out to Phoenix, road tripped down to Virginia. I have been devouring the podcast Smartless. And um, my cousin John told me about it uh, when, when they interviewed Bono about six weeks ago. And I really enjoyed that uh, interview. I had no idea about this podcast. But then driving out to Phoenix, I was like, oh, I'll check that out. And just like plowed through it. I, I, I'm, I will be so bummed when I make it through their entire catalog of what they've produced so far. And we'll have to wait like everybody else week to week 
uh, to see what they come out with. I've just been having the best time listening to that. It's just a lot of fun. Um, last weekend, not yesterday, but the weekend before that, uh, Steve and I were in New York City for about three days. Uh, and last Monday night, we saw Bono's show, Stories of Surrender, which I've been looking forward to for a long time. I read his book last December, and my goodness, could not put it down. So powerful. I knew a lot of the a lot of the stories in that, um, just from reading and you know being interested in you two and following the band over the last forty years. And um, but to to sort of hear accounts from a new perspective, and then to sort of have Bono open up his heart was just a powerful experience. Uh, really interesting, really interesting, very insightful in many ways. <clears throat> and then I listened to the audiobook uh, when I was driving to and from Phoenix uh, in March. And um, all of that, and then the show last Monday night was really, really powerful because uh, he had sort of a conflicted relationship with his dad um, after the death of his mother. And he talks a lot about that very vulnerably, talks a lot about the the beauty of friendship and, you know, the wonder and the mystery and the complexity and the bewildering character of marriage. And um, all of that resonated powerfully. And I just found it profoundly moving. And Steve and I sat at a bar afterwards and just sort of hashed a bunch of that out, which was uh, totally fun. And we otherwise had a blast just hanging out in New York City. We, we stayed at a place like right above Times Square, um, rode bikes through Central Park, hung out at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, saw a bunch of uh, the Impressionists, uh, some, I mean, what, what don't they have at the Metropolitan Museum of Art? My goodness. Um, I've been to a number of times, uh, the National Gallery in London, and to the Louvre and to um, the Musée d'Orsay across the Seine from it. And these these major, to say nothing of the one in our own state here, the Detroit Institute of Art, um, to see the collections that these museums have is just over, it's just awesome and staggering. And I and, uh, got to see one, I got to see a Van Gogh at the Met that I had not seen before. And um, that was, all that was just so cool. And uh, my travel continues, although I keep saying it's going to slow down at some point. It kind of does. Kind of does. Um, I'm still traveling really through the end of May, the first week of June. And then I think I'm just going to not really schedule anything after that. I'm heading to Kentucky tomorrow. Um, middle of next week, Steve and I are heading to England. I'm uh, going to hang out in London for a couple of days and then take the train up to Scotland and see my son Riley who's been spending this last year in uh, St. Andrews studying ancient history. And, um, Riley's also, uh, one of the top humans of all time. That will be absolutely fantastic. <clears throat> Look forward to hanging out with him. I might play some golf in St. Andrews. I know that, um, most mornings that were there, I will be enjoying a cooked English breakfast or the, uh, the full Scottish cooked breakfast. Uh, we'll have to do a lot of walking because I know I'm going to be eating a ton.
after that, I'm heading to LA for um, in May, and then again in June for a couple of different things. And um, well, to hang out with the folks at uh, Vox Church, and then to hang out with the wonderful folks at Redemption Church. And um, um, I just am so amazed that um, I get the opportunity to uh, to spend time with just such wonderful people. Um, that they have any interest in wanting to uh, hang out with me or have me hang out with them. And um, these kind of fun opportunities, I, I just feel like are a serious delight. And I just feel like a spoiled rotten kid. And I'm going to enjoy it before anybody catches on. Uh, since I got lazy and just didn't put out any podcasts, a bunch of stuff has happened. The baseball season has begun. And what's really interesting is like the Cubs are doing pretty well. They're well, by which I mean they're above 500, which is incredible. They uh, they just lost three out of four to the Dodgers at Wrigley, um, but they've put together. I think they had won every one of their series up until that series, and they've just been going gangbusters. It's really cool, very cool to see. What's also interesting is to see the change in uh, the tempo of games uh, now that they've introduced. Uh, some rule changes, you know, the pitch clock, um, the change in the size of bases, all of that. I think it's, it's so long overdue. Uh, the game had kind of stagnated. Andrew sent me an email uh, of an analysis of how baseball had basically become like a version of AI, like just this boring by the numbers um, kind of lame performance of Pitchers going for you know one of three true outcomes, either uh, a walk, a strikeout, or a home run. And so many, having grown up on like seventies and eighties baseball, uh, especially you know focusing on the Cubs Cardinals rivalry in those days, when uh, the Cardinals played small ball, stolen bases, base hits, move the runner over, opposite field hits. I mean, creative, skillful baseball in the last 10 years or so, it's just stagnated and uh, games were taking forever. Not that they, not that the games themselves were taking forever because so few people like sort of stayed through a nine inning game. But when you're watching say like a five inning stretch, they go so slowly and the, the pace of games has picked up. And I think the quality of play has, has uh, improved immensely in my opinion. And what's really cool um, is that I think that's the opinion of most observers of the sport. Anyway, I expect very little from the Cubs this year, um, but it's cool to see that they're above 500 at this point and a bunch of the changes they made during the offseason are paying off. Some of the new folks that have come uh, are contributing in some really significant ways, and it's been really exciting. also enjoyed uh, watching the Masters. Uh, that first week of April is always like, my favorite time of the year where you've got opening day and master's week, sometimes in the same week. Um, but usually within about 10 days of each other. And, uh, the masters was really fun to watch. Unfortunately, uh, I was flying home from Seattle on master's Sunday, also called this year, Easter Sunday. Uh, but I caught a bunch of the audio while driving from Chicago back to grand Rapids after having landed and um, got to see the last uh, nine or 10 holes uh, that John Rahm played. Um, a worthy champion. I think everybody that's been watching uh, John Rahm 
just sort of burst on the scene over the last several years has known this guy is going to rack up majors. He's just an absolute hoss, crushes the ball, um, just a solid player in every way. Sometimes his putter is a little bit shaky, but um, just a beast. And what I think is really interesting is to watch him. He's one of these people who sort of has a kind of a self-made swing. It's a little bit unorthodox if you you know follow all the swing gurus, but I love that. Um, and he's he's a Spaniard in the tradition of like uh, Sevi and Jose Maria Olathabal and Sergio and these guys all won Masters, and um, they all sort of had their own style and their own swing that was unorthodox, but they're highly creative, and they play with a lot of passion. So I'm really glad for him. Not a surprise to see him win it. Um, just always fun to watch him. Um, I've been catching up on the last seasons of Ted Lasso and Succession. Was talking with my friend Trig last week over lunch about these two shows, uh, especially about Ted Lasso and the the beauty of that show. It's just so cool. And Trig was talking about uh, the character of Grace, and um, we were talking about you know the beauty of gritty kindness and um, the kind of kindness that is serious and um, that is completely unsentimental. And it was really cool to hear Trigg's reflections on the show. And um, I'm going to be so sad when that one is over. I'm going to be heartbroken that this is the final season of Ted Lasso. It'll be cool to see how the the different narrative strands wrap up and how the different characters come to some uh, sense of resolution. But I'll be sad. I always hate it when I come to the end of a good novel always hate it when I come to the end of a good book. Uh, I feel like in so many ways I've made a good friend when I read a good book and they've taken me on a journey and there's, there's just some kind of bitter sweetness about finishing a book. Um, I feel the same about Ted Lasso. I'm going to be bummed. I will be, I'm, I'm just as riveted, but will be completely not bummed whatsoever when succession ends. Um, that show is populated with nothing but wicked and evil characters that are all Machiavellian and, uh, there's no hero. They're, they're just all bad characters. Huge plot twist. Won't say what it is last week. <clears throat> sorry, two weeks ago. And, uh, I've not yet seen the episode that, that came out yesterday. That might be for tonight. I would have watched it last night, but I, I've been into this. Uh, the show that my friend Joe told me about called Shrinking uh, with Harrison Ford and Jason Segel, uh, a couple other actors, can't call to mind their names right now, um, but it's about a therapy practice, uh, therapy practice. There's a, the main character is a therapist, um, Jimmy, and it's, it has the same kind of flavor and tenor as Ted Lasso. Uh, in my opinion, the, the writing is not as tight and crisp, but it's it's fun and beautiful. And the characters love each other and, and sort of try to get along with each other and handle each other's uh, foibles. And what's also nice is the episodes are pretty short. So slightly unusually over this last <clears throat> weekend, I think since Friday night, I went wild and watched all 10 episodes of the first season. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Absolutely good stuff. 
I uh, I don't have a book to talk about in this episode because I've not yet finished this book that I'm in the middle of, and I'm going to want to take some time to digest it and write up some stuff about it. But I'm reading a book by Daniel Hummel, uh, who's a historian, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And for me, it is riveting. It's absolutely fascinating. I had grown up in a um, in in a home with parents who um, were Bible church people, and the Bible church movement actually started at their home church, was started by their pastor there in Cicero Bible Church, and it was a um, it was a, a heavily dispensational movement, uh, and so I grew up with with that sort of stuff with with di- dispensational teaching. Um, dispensational books on our shelves. Um, when I really got into studying the Bible in college for myself, uh, the books that were recommended to me were sort of dispensational books and uh, books on dispensationalism or a dispensational approach to the Bible. Uh, so in so many ways, that's my heritage. And then when, it, when I went to seminary, I went to a seminary that was heavily influenced uh, by dispensationalism and professors who had been trained by um, uh, at Dallas Seminary and uh, Talbot Theological Seminary, both places with um, that were thoroughgoingly shaped by dispensationalism. And so this book, um, I have to say, I was sort of like, what, what, after taking courses on dispensationalism and after reading every book that everyone was supposed to read on dispensationalism, what could I possibly have to learn about this? And um, I have to say, it is absolutely fascinating. It's very sort of careful in the distinctions that he makes as he uh, tracks things historically. Um, but he goes back into um, the early 1800s <clears throat> in the Brethren uh, movement in England and uh, just vast research that this guy did, uh, Daniel Hummel. Um, but it also manages to be like a well-paced, well-written narrative and um, bringing in the personalities of these people and not only sort of what they taught, but, you know, the social pressures that were being brought to bear and why people said what they said and did what they did and saw things the way they saw things. And um, already sort of one of my longstanding um, questions has been resolved. I'd always wondered, um, why is there so little relationship between historic American black church and dispensationalism? Like at um, schools in the one of the big factors going on in um, the development of dispensationalism is the founding of all of these Bible colleges and Bible schools like Biola, which was first of all the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, later just Biola, um, Moody Bible Institute, Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, all the major thinkers were white. And at those places, there are so few black professors, so few black students. Um, in Bible church contexts, there are just black people are not part of that. So like, like, why not? If we, if we, I remember thinking, if we have Bible truth, if we have the biblical truth for what it is, why isn't it transferable? Why don't other traditions see it? And it is fascinating to see, um, premillennial leaders who were very into premillennialism and, um, sort of Dwight Moody along with them. One of their major concerns in spreading their movement was uh, in the post 
Civil War era to unite uh, churches that were sort of right along uh, the Mason-Dixon line and um, just north and just south to sort of bring unity. And one of the things they decided to do was to sort of uh, forego discussions about the things that divide us. And of course, what things divide us? We, the country fought a war over whether or not white people could own black people. And so if you just don't want to talk about the things that divide, you're not going to talk about that question. And therefore, if you're a bunch of Christian churches or you want to get a Christian movement going, um, where your priority is to not talk about that issue, um, you're going to signal powerfully, or you're going to just sort of declare powerfully uh, to black Christians that you are not an advocate or an ally or that you do not see them and that you do not value them. And um, pretty interesting. Also, key to the development of dispensational theology was this focus on the heavenly people of God. There's all these distinctions in dispensationalism between the heavenly people of God and the earthly people of God. And to bring about this unity, there was the uh, dispensation or premillennial dispensationalism hadn't really come along yet, but what was dispensationalism prior to that, proto-dispensationalism, uh, made a distinction between the heavenly people of God and the earthly people of God. And the earthly people of God was the nation Israel, and the heavenly people of God was the church. And so since we are all uh, sort of to be heavenly minded, we really should not be talking about social issues. We really should not be talking about, um, you know, um, racial justice or you know, reconstruction. Let's let all those things go and just kind of focus on uh, heavens now and then us all going to heaven in the future. But all that stuff about uh, justice doing in the Bible is going to be inconvenient or actually was just overlooked. Um, let me reframe that. These are serious Bible people. And so all of the justice doing stuff in the Bible had to be related to some past age or to a future age, but it's not what the church should be doing now. So uh, churches taking up the cause of racial justice was seen to get in the way of building the heavenly people of God. That is just staggering. Um, that makes so much sense. That just makes so much sense. So people like Moody, um, uh, James Brooks, other figures that um, Daniel Hummel mentions um, just were not ever because of their aims in building a movement, gaining popularity and um, laying the groundwork for what would later become evangelicalism um, in their aims. And then because of their aims, the development of their theology, uh, they were just never going to be people that would advocate for the necessity of social justice here and now. And um, <clears throat> one of Hummel's, uh, where I think he's going, <clears throat> is that these folks basically lay the groundwork for later evangelicalism. So if you want to know why it is that evangelical white evangelical culture in America, white conservative evangelical Christian culture, um, is so dominated by whiteness, has so few black um, folks in it, black Christian leaders, why there's so little sort of integration of communities, it's because at the beginning and before the beginning, uh, the networks that led to the networks that led to the development of evangelicalism had decided already 
in their social, in, in the relationships between churches and in their theology, they decided to bracket out all concerns that would be um, of great concern to black Christians. Anyway, that for me solved a riddle. And um, there's also just so much more. I, I'm really enjoying that book and I look forward to saying some more about it down the road. Uh, I'm hoping to put out an episode uh, next week before I take off for a while. And then um, things will be sporadic in May and hopefully be a bit more consistent in June and July. But um, we'll see how things go. Can't make any promises. I thought I would talk a little bit about reading biblical narratives, like how to do it, things to keep in mind when reading biblical narratives and that sort of thing. I know that um, over the last bunch of episodes, I've made uh, some comments about biblical narratives, but I thought I would take an episode or two uh, to do so a bit more completely and even to spend some time on uh, talking about various episodes or uh, to give some examples of how some of these things actually work out. So uh, a couple of things to keep in mind. Keep in mind that uh, narratives, biblical narratives mean, that is, they sort of um, get across their meaning or how they're supposed to function in very distinct ways. They, they work differently from how other uh, genres of scripture work. Um, very much like fiction or very much like narratives that we find in our world, like films or novels or, you know, um, tribal accounts or whatever. Um, narratives create their own worlds and they have to be understood on their own terms. That is, you know, meaning takes place within the world, within the world of a, of a discrete author. So, um, for example, say, uh, first and second Kings creates its own world, the author or authors or editors of, of those texts of that text, actually, uh, broken up into two, uh, cover some of the same material as first and second Samuel, or they sort of cover the same uh, persons, characters, but keep in mind that the characters as they're developed and the world of first and second Kings is different from the world of first and second Samuel, because the different authors are doing different sorts of things and they're going to construct their characters differently because they see the world differently, not in, you don't think in terms of contradictorily or anything like that, um, but they're different narratives and they have to be understood on their own. So one of the major things we have to keep in mind is just to sort of enter into distinct worlds that authors create and uh, kind of look around or get the feel of that world. How does that world, how does that narrative world function? Novel readers will totally get this. People who watch Films will totally get this. When you're reading a novel, um, I was talking to my friend Chris the other night about the brilliant novel, um, The Book of the Dun Cow. If you've never read The Book of the Dun Cow, you've got to read it. And the follow-up, uh, The Book of Sorrows. I believe there's a third one. I, I never read that one. Um, but that narrative world is, is very distinct. It's a farmyard. And there it, it works in certain ways. And the dynamics that go on um, are happening in, in certain ways. When you watch a film or when you read a novel, you surrender to that world. And there are certain questions that you do ask. And there are certain questions that you don't ask. Uh, 
like when you're watching a film, you don't ask the question, did that really happen? You know, can we historically verify that or something like that? Um, this is very natural. This is very intuitive with novels and with uh, films, but we tend to not do this when we engage with the Gospels or with Old Testament narratives, and that's really an unfortunate. Um, in fact, it's really tough for uh, most Christian readers of the Bible when it comes to the Gospels because we have four of them, and it's so tempting to sort of blend accounts or to hop to other Gospels to look for meaning. Like, you know, Mark describes Jesus talking to the woman like this, but you know, Matthew describes him talking to the woman like that. Uh, what really happened or something like that? When the question that we should be asking is, you know, what's going on in Mark's narrative world? What's going on in Matthew's narrative world? Um, how does this discrete episode contribute to what Mark is doing and how he's developing characters and how he sort of sets that episode next to other episodes? You know, what sorts of things does Jesus typically do? The narrative worlds of each of the four Gospels function differently. Uh, like the narrative in the narrative world of Luke, um, Luke routinely brings his characters into these sort of like dead ends. And there's like a miraculous escape. Well, Mark doesn't do that. But Luke is doing something very distinct. And um, the question is, what's Luke doing in this world? Well, these, these are the kinds of things that happen in Luke's narrative world. And that's actually really important to grasp um, because there's one sort of dead end that uh, Jesus gets into in Luke 4. And um, that's very, to understand that that's what Luke is doing is key to understanding what happens in Luke 4. And I'm thinking uh, of when Jesus uh, opens up his ministry in his hometown. And after announcing the character of his ministry, the town folk take him to the precipice of a hill and are going to throw him off it. And um, Jesus miraculously escapes their grasp. Well, what's that all about? What happened? And um, it's just interesting that this is sort of a routine thing that Luke does. And uh, he purposefully doesn't give us a lot of detail. We're supposed to kind of fill in from the rest of the other episodes where um, a character gets into a dead end. We're supposed to kind of fill in somehow God miraculously rescued Jesus from that um that bad situation. Anyway, that kind of thing doesn't happen in Matthew or John or Mark. And Luke has his own world where there are characters are functioning in different ways. And even the character God is functioning in distinct ways. Um, each sort of giving us a particular window into God, into Jesus, uh, into what it means to be uh, disciples of Jesus and what it means that Jesus is in some way, God, the God of Israel, and in some way related to the God of Israel. Each author does that differently. When we read Old Testament narratives, many of us tend, I think, to read with historical interest, like this is what happened, uh, rather than thinking, this is how we ought to see the world. This is the, this is the world in which God shows up in these kinds of ways, or this is the world in which uh, characters who are faithful to God behave like this. And... Uh, in that world, these kind of wild things sort of happen. So get into each narrative's world and look around it, get a feel for it, see how characters are developing, see what how the drama of each narrative world develops. And don't get tripped up by uh, historical concerns or even, even really concerns for sequence. Um, 
in in first Samuel 17, it's really interesting. Um, David is brought to Saul. And if you read carefully, you can see that in some way, uh, David and Saul had already met. But when uh, when they bring David to Saul in first Samuel 17, Saul's like, who is this kid? What's going on here? And the temptation would be, wait, wait a minute. He's already met him. Why is he asking that question? Uh, <clears throat> when we should be asking, what's happening here in this episode? And um, what's going on in the, in the world? Uh, what, what, what's happening in the character's perceived uh, imagination when it comes to the world? And in 1 Samuel 17, it's really strategic that Saul expresses surprise at this, you know, maybe preteen or early teen kid that they bring to him. When everybody in 1 Samuel 17 and every, that's the David and Goliath narrative. And even Saul himself, everyone's looking for a man to sort of take on the giant man, Goliath. And they bring him this boy and he's like, who is this kid? Well, all of that is really uh, crucial for understanding the world. Um, because the characters in that narrative see the world in certain ways, and that's in direct contrast to how David sees the world. Excuse me. And what the narrator is wanting us to do is to begin to see the world the way that David does, because the way that that narrative works out, works out in David's favor. And so that narrator is commending to audiences a vision of the world as portrayed through how David sees it. So keep in mind, when reading biblical narratives, Old Testament and New, what they are doing is they are portraying and they're creating these narrative worlds and realize that there are certain rules that are up and running in these various worlds that they create. Do the same thing you do when you read a novel. Uh, when you read Lord of the Rings or watch those films, you suspend disbelief and you imagine that these are the kinds of things that can happen. And biblical narratives are doing very much the same thing. I realize that a lot of Christian people get tripped up because we're we're, we're sort of uh, trained to read our Bibles um, looking for, quote unquote, biblical truth, which we imagine comes in the form of like truths or propositions or statements or things that we can confess when what narrators are doing is trying to get us to see reality, ourselves, God, Jesus, what it means to be the people of God from a new perspective, from the perspective of the world as they create it. Uh, a second point, when reading Old Testament narratives, let those narratives inform and shape how you think about God and let go of previous understandings of who you think God is. I think, again, so many Christians naturally resist this um, because in biblical narratives, <clears throat> we see God getting frustrated that certain things don't work out the way that he had intended or we see God finding things out, or we see God planning to do something or intending to do something and then later changing his mind. We see God interacting with characters. If we think of God as like static or as having attributes, you know, just sort of possessing, he's, he's sort of the sum total of this uh, calculation, um, we're going to get tripped up. Or if we imagine God through through the lens of the omni terms, he's omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. He could do whatever he wants. He's never frustrated. His plans are never, you know, come to naught or whatever. 
Well, we're going to really be frustrated and really run into trouble when it comes to reading narratives. We'll, we'll always be thinking, well, God's not really like that, or God could actually do what he wanted, or you know, that's not how he really is, or God actually knew and wasn't surprised at all. And that gets us into trouble instead of letting biblical narratives shape how we think about God. Uh, we often run into trouble thinking that we know who God is. And that makes us sort of read these biblical narratives in, in a quizzical fashion. Why did God portray himself this way? Well, he just wants you know Moses to think that that's what he's like, or he just wants Isaiah to think that that's what he's like. Uh, that gets us into trouble. So in reading biblical narratives, in Old Testament narratives, understand that you're getting to know the God of Israel. And let narratives portray for you what the God of Israel is actually like. And he'll surprise you. He'll make you scratch your head. Uh, and that's that's not the worst thing. That's actually, that's actually way better than the whatever theological uh, conception of things you've inherited. A uh, third point, in the same way, when reading uh, the Gospels, let each Gospel writer inform how you think about Jesus and forget what you think you know about Jesus or who, who Jesus is supposed to be and even try to set aside thinking that Jesus is God because all of those assumptions that you have about God uh you'll sort of unintentionally um import onto Jesus we're taught that Jesus is God and we all know that God knows everything he's omniscient um but like I said, that gets us into trouble when Jesus is surprised or when Jesus learned things or when, especially when Jesus dies. One of the most interesting episodes, uh, and there are many, of course, in Jesus's life is the way that Luke narrates um, when Jesus was 12 and he goes to the temple, his parents bring him to the temple and um, Mary and Joseph lose him for three days, which is really wild. Um, when Steve and I were in Central Park, I told him about how one time, excuse me, we were in Central Park years ago and our youngest son, Riley, who I think was about nine or 10 at the time, somehow wandered off Central Park. It's massive. And we lost him for like 10 minutes, which is the longest 10 minutes of my life. And, um, we were with friends and all of us were frantically scurrying all over the place, shouting for him and trying to find him. We we're all freaked out. And um, think, thankfully, we found him after only about 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, I don't think he was too scarred by that. Can't imagine how Joseph and Mary must have felt having lost Jesus for three days, which is just bananas. Um, but... That, oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. That episode is really interesting because um, Luke is trying to portray for us that Jesus develops just like any human would develop. He's learning things. He's growing. He's coming to understand things more and more. And when Luke has him there in the temple, he is asking questions of the teachers of the law. He's grappling with things. He's coming to understand some things. And Luke even emphasizes that by saying that Jesus is growing in wisdom and understanding. Um, 
that has got to shape how we think about Jesus and it's got to shape how we think about God. And if that messes in some way with our theological conception of Jesus, then let it. Because it doesn't stop at that episode. Jesus learns things and is surprised at things throughout the Gospels. And that has to inform how we think about Jesus. That has to inform how we think about the reality that Jesus is God. Uh, again, the Gospels are not emphasizing that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. They're emphasizing that Jesus is God. Like you actually don't know much about God, audience. This is what the gospel writers are saying to all of us. You don't actually know much about God and you've got a lot of bad conceptions about God. And Jesus has arrived on the scene to inform our understanding of God, to basically perform for us uh, as a human what it is to be God. And what it is to be God is to learn things, um, is, to, is to be in relation with other um, humans. And eventually, of course, the ultimate scandal of the Gospels, what it means to be God is to die. I mean, that really messes with us. In fact, in the early church, there was a teaching that in some way, right before Jesus died, um, his, his godness sort of escaped or left him um, because surely it can't be that God would die. But the way that the biblical, the way that the gospel authors write, it's that at the cross or in dying, Jesus actually fully reveals the God of Israel, the God who is the creator of everything. And so we're supposed to understand God through the lens of the cross, which really messes us up. So um, the scandal of the cross, the weakness of the cross, the shame of the cross, the surrender of the cross, that's who God is. That's how we ought to be understanding God. So set aside uh, the thought that Jesus is divine. He's God. He really is who he says he was. Um, and think in terms of, we don't know the meaning of the second term in that expression, Jesus is God. We are all ignorant about God, and Jesus is going to uh, inform how we should be thinking about uh, who God is and what it means to be God. And um, <clears throat> another point, remember that the biblical narratives, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, were read aloud to audiences. And the authors knew that. They knew that they're reading, or sorry, writing these narratives or constructing these narratives. Actually, these narratives uh, were performed for audiences before they were written down. They're written down to sort of preserve them, uh, to preserve what had been performed before audiences and spoken before audiences, later written down and written down to be re-performed before audiences. And that's important because reactions would be stirred up. Authors wanted to stir up reactions and all of that would be part of the meaning making of narratives. So just as you see like a dramatic film uh, in a theater and you sort of feed off the energy of, of fellow audience members, uh, or just as you see a comedy in a film and you're, you laugh harder because you're in a theater watching with friends and laughing along with a big audience, that's sort of, that, that's part of the meaning making that filmmakers know they're putting in to their work. The same is true of biblical writers and of biblical texts. 
They're, they're anticipating reactions. And those anticipated reactions are part of the meaning making of narratives. I'll give an illustration of this or an example of it. This is the episode um, from Mark 7, when Jesus encounters the Syrian Phoenician woman. Just listen to, to how this sounds, and then I'll, I'll read it again. Um, Mark 7, 24 to 30. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. What's interesting about that story is how it strikes modern readers and modern ears and the questions that are often raised about it. And from my experience, the questions that are often raised are sort of focused on how in the world can Jesus speak so awfully to this poor woman? How can he basically call her a dog? Is that really what Jesus is like? That sort of thing. We miss, we miss a lot of the meaning-making that Mark sort of puts into this text uh, when we just read it in our Bibles or we read it by ourselves and that sort of thing. But just imagine that you're hearing this uh, with fellow audience members, especially with a Jewish audience. But this would have gone beyond uh, a Jewish audience because social codes would have been known more widely. But it probably would have sounded like this or it probably would have uh, felt something like this. Jesus got up and went away. Sorry, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. Probably would have been an unsettled audience. Like, what? What's he doing there? Tyre? That's where our enemies are. And when he had entered a house, what? Jesus goes into a house? A probably Gentile house in a place where there are very few Jews and our enemies to the north there? He wanted, to, he wanted no one to know of it. Well, of course, it's shameful, breaking the law. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. <gasps> Man, she's already just a bad actor. Immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman <gasps> was a Gentile. Oh, my word. Of the Syrophoenician race. Oh my word, she's got all these strikes against her. She is the uncleanest of unclean. What is he doing? Surely he's just going to blast her. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Seriously, Jesus, yes, own her. That kind of insult would have made sense to an audience. <clears throat> it would have been met by cheers. They would have been like, yes, finally. Yes, 
Exactly, Jesus. Tell her. Then comes the punchline. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. Whoa. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back home, and going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Whoa. Audiences would be stunned. Audiences would have felt rebuked even. Or they would have been puzzled. Just, it would have been a stunning turn. Mark knows the kind of prejudices that uh, would be up and running in his audiences and even in non-Jewish audiences. They would, have, they would have caught the social dimensions of what was happening there. That it was highly surprising for Jesus to go to the north beyond the boundary of Israel. That it was shocking and shameful for him to go into a non-Jew's house. That just wasn't done. And then for him to meet this character who is the uncleanest of the unclean and to not just flee the house or blast her would have been an absolute shock. When he initially insults her, an audience would have been, there would have been some measure of satisfaction. Like that's Jesus setting the situation right. Like this is not for you. Yes, get out, you unclean dog. But when she answers and Jesus commends her, that's a shocker. A narrative like this would have left an audience breathless. They would have caught all those social codes. So not only, um, I mean, not only are all the observers of that episode <clears throat> kind of shocked, but audiences who are hearing the episode are shocked. Now, I know that that does make it a challenge for modern readers um, to sort of be as informed as possible about, about first century realities. Um, and my goodness, get anything you can on understanding first century Jewish culture, the Greco-Roman world and the social codes and, and, and um, how ethnic, various ethnicities saw each other and what it meant uh, to, to live in various regions. But this is just to say, pay close attention uh, to how characters are developed and what is said about their ethnicity their social class, their social position, um, and how that would have struck original audiences and what would have been the prejudices up and running in audiences because all of that is critical to how narratives work. So like when you get a comment like in John, um, when Jesus meets the woman at the well in John 4, and John tells us how unusual it is for a Jew and a Samaritan to even have any kind of conversation. That is a massive, like, um, you know, a billboard. This is not a normal conversation. Jesus speaking with the woman at the well. This isn't normal. And to learn as much as possible um, about gender codes in the, the Greco-Roman world would be really helpful because you see how much of a scandal it is that Jesus asks her for something and that Jesus initiates the conversation. Just really wild. Um, but anyway, just to say, think about how audiences would be unsettled by some of these things and how they would be sort of breathless or how they would be uncomfortable and shuffling around on the floor and kind of elbowing each other. What's going on with this? What's the deal? An Old Testament example would be, you know, David's character and how it's developed in, in 1 Samuel 17, the narrative that I mentioned a bit ago. 
Um, I might say more about that later as well, but just make note of how that character is developed in the drama and how, how um, the narrator and how he sort of shapes that narrative, how that would work on audiences. There's a constant question um, sort of raised throughout that narrative. Like, where's there a man who will meet this giant of a man? And then this man said to that man, there's like a constant mentioning of men and man in that narrative. And then the narrator is like, no, there was a boy. And David is given all of these um, attributes in that narrative that make him anything but a man. And then Goliath is stunned that he's facing this boy instead of a man. All of that would work on audiences. They would, they would perceive the story is happening. That they would sort of shape how they would be, um, you know, either they would see how overwhelming the odds were and that would increase the tension. And then that would fuel all the celebration when that narrative ends well. So just to say, when it comes to biblical narratives, uh, keep in mind that um, when we encounter our Bibles, we're doing something highly unusual. We are often reading on our own. And audiences heard Old Testament narratives. Audiences heard New Testament narratives. And it wasn't for a long time before private Bible readers ever came on the scene for a very, very long time, hundreds of years after um, even the New Testament to say nothing of the Old Testament. Illiteracy was the rule. Literacy is the by far the exception. Uh, it might be good to actually hear biblical narratives with groups to kind of get this and kind of um, see if you can somehow inform the drama of what is happening in these narratives and see if you can feel as an audience what's kind of uh, going on. Well, lots more to say about biblical narratives, um, but I hope to hit some of that in the next episode, maybe wrap it up at that point or go on from there. I have no idea. There's no plan. We're just talking about Bible reading. Well, the sun's out and I'm going to enjoy it. And I'll say with Bono, it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. Thank you.